Welcome to the Brookings Cafeteria, a podcast about ideas and the experts who have them. I'm Fred Dews. Today's show features a discussion with two of the leading experts on improving education outcomes in the developing world. Plus, meet the new director of the Health Policy Center at Brookings. And finally, a discussion with the author of a new Brookings book on the current crisis in policing and how police departments can turn back to making public safety and public cooperation their primary goals. My guests in the studio today are Jenny Perlman-Robinson and Rebecca Winthrop. Jenny is a non-resident fellow in our Center for Universal Education at Brookings, and Rebecca is a senior fellow and director of the center. They're the co-authors with Eileen McGivney of Millions Learning, Scaling Up Quality Education in Developing Countries. Welcome to the show, Jenny, and welcome back to the show, Rebecca. Thanks. Thanks, Fred. So can you provide some context about the state of children's education around the world, especially in the developing world? So there's been a lot of progress on children's education around the world in the last 15 years in getting kids into primary school. Nine out of 10 kids around the world are in primary school, which is actually a, a great achievement and been a big push. We talked have talked about this before right. with the Millennium Development Goals. Um, but there's a lot to be done. A lot of kids are dropping out before they finish uh, secondary school. Uh, there's a sort of horrifying statistic. 75% of girls in sub-Saharan Africa enter primary school, but only 8% finish secondary school. Uh, and a huge reason why kids are dropping out is that there's really um, poor quality. Kids are not learning they're getting in, but they're really not learning what they should be learning to um, move forward. There's about 250 million kids around the world um, who don't have basic literacy or numeracy skills. The vast majority of them have sat in school year after year for four years and can barely read or write. A quote from your report is, quality education is at the center of a nation's progress and it is also enshrined in the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. Uh, You also talk early on in the report about this 100-year gap Uh, between the developed world and the developing world in education. Can you explain what that is? Yeah, the 100-year gap um, is something that my my colleague Eileen McGivney and I have been working on, um, which is looking at the progress of education in the developed world vis-a-vis the developing world. Um, And in many ways, um, uh, we were really surprised what a huge gap it is. And basically, the story is that the developing world is still 100 years behind the developed world in terms of levels of education and and um, progress in learning. And most sadly, it's not projected to change with the interventions we have going on today. The, the gap in education is... Uh, between the developing world and the developed world is projected to close, you know, sometime in the next sort of 80, 100, 120 years, depending on which indicator you're looking at. And I just want to make sure that uh, listeners kind of understand where we've been recently with the Millennium Development Goals, about which, as you said, we did, we've done a podcast. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was mostly about access mm-hmm. to education. But now we're talking about more than access under right. the Sustainable Development Goals. Can you go into that a little bit further? Yeah. So, The Millennium Development Goals really um, did a great and important job of pushing kids to enroll in primary school. And that was for the 15 years of 2000 to 2015. Um, And a lot of progress was made. But now, for the next 15 years, the world has signed on to these sustainable development goals. And there's a lot of them. And the one on education is really about ensuring quality, lifelong learning 
um, for young people around the world. Um, so it's in some ways shifted from a global education movement to really a global learning movement, and learning is is becoming at the center. Um, and how to do it equitably, ensure everybody is, has access to good learning opportunities, is is the push. All right. One more context-setting question before we dive into the report itself, and that's about. The word scaling up, it's in the title of the report. <laughs> you, you see it a lot in the literature and the public policy, especially in global development. So can, can one of you speak to what this means, scaling up? Scaling up. Um, and you should add, Jenny, if uh, I uh, don't do it perfectly. Um, so scaling up is really about reaching more people in more places. Um, with something that is effective. Uh, and you can think about it, and we think about it a lot in the report of sort of going big to small. You can also think about it as going sort of big to better. Um, and one of the things that we know um, from a lot of our research in education is that actually there's a lot of great things that work out there um, in terms of giving children high quality learning opportunities, including for the most marginalized children. But they're, um, frequently done in, you know, sort of a small set of schools, and they're kind of the exception rather than the rule. So for us, we were really looking at, you know, where where have places around the world made sort of uh, improvements in learning as sort of the new norm rather than the exception? Yeah, and I, and I might just add to that that, you know, the sort of process of scaling up is a lot of what we looked at. And it wasn't to say that we were just interested in how did a really nice small boutique project manage to grow to a certain amount? But it was how did an intervention, whether it was a program or a policy, that might have started a little bit under the radar, maybe not sort of, you know, with right at the center of the education system, but how was it able to grow and expand and eventually change and affect the larger system? So we recognize when we're talking about education and you wanting to improve the quality of education, it has to be systemic. You have to address the entire system. But there's a lot of different ways to address the system and get there. And what we looked at were these cases that, you know, have successfully, and it's still a journey, it's still an ongoing process, but have been able to influence and affect and, um, you know, in collaboration, state and non-state actors, improve the larger system. So now that we're talking about the report, we move beyond the context. Uh, you, you mentioned the cases, Jenny. Uh, I know there's 14 case studies in the report. Can you talk about uh, why there are 14 case studies, what they entail? Did they entail travel, for example? Sure, sure. I think there are 14 in some ways because it's a manageable number. There could certainly have been many, many other cases that we included. Um, and for us, these cases were selected for a number of reasons. One, we had some criteria, of course, that there was an immeasurable improvement in learning. And for us, we were very interested in learning such as, you know, reading, math, writing skills, but broader skills, you know, social emotional skills, um, digital literacy, financial literacy. We really approached learning quite broadly. Um, secondly, that this progress occurred in a lower middle income country. And thirdly, that it was reaching a significant number of children and young people. And that varied, right? At scale in India is very different than at scale in a refugee camp in Kenya. Um, so it really varies, but, you know, relative to the location that was reaching a large number. Um, beyond that, we selected them 
because there was, we thought, a very interesting story to tell, that there was an interesting approach taken, an interesting pathway taken to scale, um, and an interesting course correction taken, you know, a mistake made along the way that had to be overcome. So there were a variety of reasons. And I say all of that because, you know, while we thought that these 14 cases were tremendously successful in a variety of different ways, there are many other ones certainly out there. Um, and, you know, these aren't by means what we think are sort of the top 10 scaling success stories either. Um, that being said, what did it take, Fred? Um, we did visit um, all of the cases, um, and either myself or colleagues who were involved in the study. And and that, you know, I think I have the best job in the world. I mean, who gets to visit <laughs> right. these incredible programs that are, you know, improving kids' learning every day and get to learn from them? Well, tell us about one of those visits. Yeah, sure. Um, I can talk about visiting um, Pratham um, in India. Pratham is the largest um, education NGO in India. They've been around for more than 20 years and, and just doing you know tremendous work. But in particular, I was visiting them to look at a remedial education program that they have called Read India. And they took me first to visit a school where they were about to be starting their program um, just to you know get a sense of, of what the school might look like. And I honestly couldn't believe what a textbook story school this was in terms of what you hear about so many schools in so many countries around the world, particularly in low-resource environments, you know, lacking the materials, the facilities, you know, um, the teachers, whatever those challenges might be. So anyway, I show up, and um, the students are all just sort of sitting outside playing with, you know, sticks in the ground. Um, you know, the teacher wasn't around. We found the teacher, and we asked, um, you know, could we just get a piece of chalk so we could introduce ourselves and write our name and they took out their key and they went into the office and they unlocked the cupboard and they took out the piece of chalk and we opened the brand new chalk case anyway they handed so you get the story then we visited one of the schools where Pratim has been working with the government in those schools and it was incredible. We showed up, and the kids are all sitting on the ground with their piece of chalk. There's no, not enough resources for, you know, chalkboards for them, but they're all using this, the cement on the ground as their chalkboard. You know, the teachers are milling around and looking and seeing and helping them. They're working in small groups and helping each other. And it was just a very, very different dynamic process in the exact same community with the exact same resources. So it was just very enlightening to see, you know, the difference. Let's take a quick break here to meet senior fellow Paul Ginsberg, the new director of the Center for Health Policy at Brookings. Okay, this is Paul Ginsberg. I recently came to Brookings. I have a million titles. At Brookings, I'm the Leonard D. Schaefer Chair in Health Policy Studies. I also direct the Center for Health Policy, and I'm a senior fellow in the Economic Studies Department. I grew up in New York City. Uh, grew up in the Bronx. Um, it was a good place to grow up, at least at that time. Well, I was very interested in economics. So, you know, from college, I went to graduate school and studied that. Thought I was interested in policy, but for various reasons I won't get into, I uh, wound up initially going to academia. And I taught at Michigan State and Duke University. And uh, after that, at one point when I was at Duke, I took a leave of absence to join the Congressional Budget Office. And I'm someone who got Potomac fever in two weeks and uh, was, you know, became very excited about uh, the work that they were doing to better inform the Congress on the health policy issues it was dealing with and uh, decided not to return to Duke and have been a Washington person ever since. Well, in healthcare, you know, we are 
well, we've made a little progress on it, we're facing this enormous cost issue. Now that the health care, the costs of health care is really making health insurance less affordable to companies and employees or individuals, and it's just drawing resources, uh, government resources, away from so many of the other priorities of government. So it really is essential that if we want people to have access to effective health care, uh, we have to find a way to uh, reduce the costs and really uh, you know, keep it at most to the current percentage of gross domestic products. Uh, we're doing work in a number of issues related to Medicare, the Affordable Care Act, and pharmaceutical policy and regulation. I've had a personal interest for a long time on provider payment reform, coming up with ways better than fee-for-service to pay uh, hospitals, physicians, and other providers, and to get them to work together. This is an exciting time for those interests because uh, both uh, Medicare and Medicaid and private insurers are all heading in the same direction, and finding fair degree of enthusiasm among providers in getting paid a different way. So, uh, uh, so I'm very optimistic that uh, that can really accomplish something, not only for costs, but I think it's going to improve quality of health care and outcomes in health care. And now back to the interview with Jenny and Rebecca. So the report itself... Uh, not only features these 14 case studies, but also what you call 14 core ingredients that, that contribute to um, the, the quality of, of scaling and learning. Is that a coincidence? <laughs> I know. We are so clever. 14 cases, 14 ingredients. It just happened to come out that way in the research. <laughs> Although I missed Gene's introduction yesterday. I understand he thought 14 were... <laughs> no, he said it was very clever, too. Oh, yeah. good. All right. That's in reference to the two-day conference you just had here at Brookings. Right. Um, so those 14 core ingredients are grouped into what you call four essential elements. Um, let's get into the weeds of the report a little bit. What are those four elements, uh, and what are some of the 14 ingredients that, uh, that particularly stand out? Sure, sure. And Rebecca, please chime in as well. Um, so we grouped these 14 ingredients around four main areas. The first is around designing at scale, and the idea being that if your plan is to go to scale, not that every single program should necessarily go to scale, but if that is your plan, it has to be considered from the beginning, and that it takes committed leaders who are thinking about this from the outset and planning for it. The second is around delivering at scale, that you might have the best designed, well-designed um, intervention, but if you aren't also thinking about the operational realities of implementing at large scale, that's going to be a challenge as well. And that, for us, really involved a combination of both political and, and um, technical strategies when you're talking about delivering at scale. The third was around finances. Um, you know, certainly, if you are interested in going to scale, if you're talking about education at scale, that takes, that takes resources, takes money. But what we found is as much as the absolute amounts are important, it's also as critically important as how, that, um, how those resources are structured and allocated. And then fourthly, we looked at the enabling environment, that um, scaling certainly doesn't take place in a vacuum, but the political, economical, economic, social, cultural environment in which this process is occurring affects its success or challenges. It stood out to me that uh, Queen Rania of Jordan is included in that enabling environment section. 
Yeah, yeah. So one of the case studies we looked at was InJazz. And InJazz is a Jordanian NGO that provides leadership and entrepreneurial training um, for secondary school students. And um, they've had um, particular success in actually integrating what was an extracurricular training program into the official secondary school system in Jordan across all 12 directorates. Another one of these ingredients that really stood out to me, because it seems so applicable to any kind of scaling up uh, program, uh, and particularly to education, is what you call the uh, middle phase financing. I know it's kind of wonky, but can you just explain what middle phase financing is? I think it's really important. Sure, sure. Um, well, we found that there, you know, there's a lot of interest in innovation, right? Innovation is sexy. Everyone wants to discover the next new good idea. And similarly, there's, there's more funding for it. One could argue not enough in education, but there certainly is, is more funding on the innovation stage. On the other hand, you have the large-scale national implementation, where that's supported by the national budgets and, in some cases, you know, supported by, by donor funding as well. Um, but where we really see the gap and the challenge is how do you move from once you have a really good pilot that you have demonstrated effectiveness – to that national, subnational, whatever that the end game is, stage. And that requires financing. And there's not a lot of players in that space. You know, there's a smaller philanthropic foundations that are doing incredibly good work, um, taking risks with those experimenting at the pilot stage. And then again, there's the larger bilateral, multilateral institutions that are supporting governments and governments themselves, of course, who are investing in the at scale. But, you know, to move from 300 schools to, you know, a statewide initiative, that really requires someone in the middle to think about financing those 3,000 schools. Well, that and those other ingredients, uh, fascinating, a lot to learn there. But I want to go to Sesame Street now. <laughs> you mentioned Sesame Street a couple of times in this report. People around the world love Sesame Street. I loved it as a kid. Uh, my daughter loved it. Um, why is Sesame Street in this report? You, yeah. I mean, I like light up when you talk about Sesame Street. That was one of my favorites. Um so Sesame, to me, is a sort of quintessential example of these core elements in so many ways. It started in the United States, um, I believe, in the 1969, in the late 1960s, came out of the civil rights era, the civil rights movement, this recognition, A, that um, preparing young children for school was critically important, the importance of the early childhood development and the early years of life, combined with the inequities of the system and what opportunities were there. And so you know, that's that's the, the um, genesis of Sesame Street and the leadership, of course, of Joan Gans Cooney. Fast forward to 2016, Sesame Street started in, in the United States. It's now in 150 countries around the world, reaching an estimated 156 million children. And it has a longevity of more than, what, 40-plus years. And 46. So, 46. Thanks for the doing the math for me. Oh, <laughs> we're the same go. age. <laughs> All right. Sesame like, Street. Yeah. Um, so anyway, you have the scale. You have the reach. You have the longevity. But on top of that, you know, the core elements that we outline in the report are all very much demonstrated in Sesame Street. It is heavily research-driven, you know, from the very start, from when they're thinking about the, the programming, from when they're working within a country, the evaluations that are done. Um, it's very much this notion that we talk about a flexible adaptation, where you have a model, 
um, where they have, you know, the Muppets. Um, they have the target age children of children, three to five year old. They have a particular approach focusing on the whole child. But then they really leave it to their local partners and country to design the programs based on the children's needs there and based on um, based on the national education goals. So it might be an HIV AIDS positive character in the case of South Africa. It might be a girl child actor, a Muppet rather, in the case of India. So they're really tailoring it to what are the educational challenges and needs in those countries. And if, if I could just add really quickly, Fred, the other thing that a lot of people don't realize about Sesame Street um, is that it has gone way beyond just a television show in a lot of countries. They do outreach programs. They do mobile. They um, do parenting engagement. And there's huge data that says they have a real impact on, on children's readiness for school and improving their, their um, learning. So a lot of the impetus for this research comes from a recognition that children globally need what you call uh, 21st century skills. It's more than just basic arithmetic, more than basic uh, liter literacy skills. What are 21st century skills? Um, well, a lot of the 21st century skills are probably equally important in the 20th century. Um, but because there is such a rapid pace of change in the world of work, largely spurred on by changing in technology, um, people tend to say that they're even more important now in the 21st century. So that's maybe where the name came from. But what are the skills exactly? Um, they're things like being able to reason, to think critically, to take vast quantities of information and synthesize it and make meaning out of it, um, to work in teams and collaborate, um, and to have what people sometimes refer to as learning agility, the ability to learn new things over and over. Our kids are going to walk into a world where, um, you know, they're not going to end up on the top of a mountain, as um, our, our colleague um, Philip from MIT says, with a number two pencil. They're going to have Google, and they're going to have more information available to them than they ever um, could imagine. So they need a whole suite of skills to be able to make meaning and find their way through that. Well, it's a big report, but here's one line that really stood out to me. I'm going to quote, too often interventions are designed at the outset solely for effectiveness and not for the efficiencies that are required for scale. Can you unpack that? Yeah, we did see that through the research um, process. Um, I'd say one is this notion of cost effectiveness, that a lot of times I think interventions at the beginning are very much and rightly so focused on what impact is it going to have. Um, but that, if you're not also taking that into account alongside the costs that are going to be required in order to go to scale, which in many ways means is it at a price that a Ministry of Education budget can actually absorb, then it's not going to go to scale. So you might have the Cadillac of interventions, which is incredibly effective, but if you're not also taking into account the costs alongside that and the unit costs at a point that could be scaled, then that's, you know, that's been one of the challenges. Well, this is Brookings, so uh, research is followed by recommendations. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about what some of the specific policy recommendations are that stem from this research? Sure. We had five recommendations. One is around sort of develop, share, um, activate, fund, and measure and learn. The last two we squished into one recommendation. So those are our five. Um, one of the things that we absolutely um, think needs to happen um, is to have a much stronger culture of research and development um, in education systems. Education systems, ironically, are responsible for children's learning, but are not very good themselves as learning organizations. Um, 
as best as many people inside them try to be. Um, and one way to do that is to have a network of research of idea hubs, we're calling them. So uh, idea hubs in different countries who can work with the multiple actors, whether it's private sector, civil society, government, who come up with new ideas to really sort of socialize the ideas, see what could be effective, see what could be spread. And those could be networked across countries because lessons are imminently shareable across contexts. And another uh, thing that Brookings does and thinks about is impact. So looking ahead, uh, you've put out this great research. You've had this event. Um, what impact do you hope this this research has? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question and certainly something that we've been thinking about. It sort of exhausts me in many ways that we've been thinking about what comes next after this report comes out well before the report was even finalized. Um, but for us, again, you know, the report was – is is and hopefully is a tool, um, certainly wasn't sort of the end game for us. Um, but that being said, Fred, I'd say at least three things. One is we very much hope that this report will help um, contribute to an ongoing conversation around how do we ensure that there are more quality learning opportunities for children and young people. And as part of that, really bringing together um, you know, a range of actors in education, outside of education, to be part of this conversation. Um, I'd say the second is around, you know, we hope in many ways that this inspires folks. You know, I think in the education community, we've done a very good job at saying education is important. It's a basic human right. And it's also instrumental in achieving all these other development, you know, goodies, as our colleague says. I think we've done a very good job more recently of sounding the alarm bell that we have a learning crisis and that the job is far, far from done. I think we also need to say, and we actually have some good ideas about what does work, um, that, you know, this whole system is not broken, that there's some really, you know, exceptional things that are happening and not necessarily even those particular programs and policies, but how they came to be and what were the conditions of the environment that allowed that to happen. So we hope it's inspiring. And just lastly, I'd say to Rebecca's recommendations, her last point was, you know, I hope we see greater experimentation and learning and sharing in the education community. Well, I want to thank you both uh, for being on the show today. Thank you. Thank you, Fred. Visit our website at brookings.edu slash millionslearning to learn more about Millions Learning and the Center for Universal Education. We broadcast the taping with Jenny and Rebecca on Facebook Live. To be notified of other live events, like us at facebook.com slash brookings. And now my colleague Bill Finan interviews Harvard's Kennedy School professor Malcolm Sparrow, author of the new Brookings Press book, Handcuffed, What Holds Policing Back? and the keys to reform. Over to you, Bill. Thanks, Fred, and good afternoon, Malcolm. Very glad to be able to talk to you this afternoon. Your new book begins with a focus on some of the cases that caught the media and the public's attention in the last few years. Two stand out, Ferguson, Missouri, a suburb of St. Louis, and Staten Island in New York City. You make the point that Ferguson and New York City have something in common. Can you tell us about that commonality and why it is so important to understanding the problems in policing? Uh, yes, I'd be happy to. Uh, I. I think it's quite extraordinary uh, how different these departments are. One has uh, in the region of 57 officers and the other um, 35,000 or so. Um, but what struck me was that the um, conduct of officers in these departments was uh, very largely driven by the selection of a very central and key, um, what they call a key performance imperative. So, But they were quite different in the two cities. Um, in Ferguson, the uh, emphasis seemed to be on raising budget revenue through traffic violations and citations. And uh, New York City police uh, has been driven ever since 1994 by the Comstat system, which really focuses on driving down 
the um, level of reported crime. Um, and one thing we know from a lot of scholarship um, and managerial literature in the private sector, as well as the public sector, is that um, there are dangers uh, if you focus too much on one single key performance imperative and don't pay enough attention to um, integrity and the methods and the styles um, of operation that people will then use to achieve those goals. Mm -hmm. You argue in Handcuffed that there's a crisis in American policing. So why do Ferguson and New York capture that crisis? Well, I think that they, uh, they and many events that, um, you know, after these two, they were, they were sufficiently close together. They both involved um, what could have been quite excessive police uh, use of force. Um, and so they sort of galvanized the national debate about the two uh, very particularly American issues in policing at the moment. One is the persistence of racial disparity, and the other is um, uh, what appears to be persistence of excessive force um, with a lack of accountability after the fact. Um, so those those are the two sort of galvanizing American uh, themes, and of course they overlap when uh, it's it looks like police violence is targeted against uh, minority groups. Um, but my interest in this is, uh, a, is a bit broader than American, and there's an awful lot of attention being brought to these distinctively um, American problems. Uh, but the profession around the world um, also suffers some of the same legacy, and I believe the lack of uh, development of the promise of reform ideas that date back uh, 20 or 30 years. And so what, what really um, helped me make the connection between these specific instances and the broader professional development issues was uh, the uh, Civil Rights Division of the Department of Justice uh, did an inquiry into the Ferguson, Missouri events and the death of Michael Brown. Um, and they did not find um, sufficient grounds to prosecute the officer involved. Um, uh, but they went on to do a very deep dive into the culture and operations and motivations of the department itself. Um, so this is the point at which you really get into um, organizational culture, how success is defined, uh, what kinds of behaviors are uh, tolerated, if not actually encouraged. Um, and uh, it's a, a, you know, excruciatingly difficult report to read because it seems as if the department had um, sort of lost its bearings. But it's a terribly penetrating analysis. And um, I was stunned when I came to the recommendations section. And they recommend, uh, number one, that the department should explore community and problem-oriented policing strategies. Uh, well, for anyone that's been involved in the history of policing um, over the last 30 to 50 years, that's an extraordinary recommendation in 2015 because these ideas were conventional wisdom back in the 1990s. And so it raises the question, uh, what on earth happened to them? And how is it that we would end up having to recommend them all over again, at least to some departments um, so recently? How are police departments reacting to the criticisms levied by your research? Are they receptive to discussions of changing policing methods or, or is there a defensiveness? 
Um, I, I think it varies a great deal. It depends a lot which part of the country you're in. Um, you know, big city forces on the East Coast um, are very proud and very prominent. Um, a lot of policing done, um, you know, to the west of the Hudson River is uh, quite different, smaller scale, uh, less uh, publicity seeking. Um, and um, I have not had, I mean, these ideas collected together in this book have certainly been part of the discussions uh, that we've had in the police profession for quite some time. I don't think on any of the points uh, I'm making, I'm necessarily the only voice um, and certainly not the first. Um, and um, the police officers, police executive classes, management groups I've been with uh, seem to uh, be very grateful for this increased uh, clarity about where they might have been um, hoodwinked or become a little bit blinkered in their approach. Um, so just uh, reminding them of the um, power of these uh, reform ideas and the uh, broad uh, application of them um, seems to come as something of a relief. You were a police officer and a detective in the United Kingdom for 10 years. Do you think that has helped in gaining credibility with the police departments in the United States for the points you make about policing and handcuffed? I think it has always helped me, uh, not just with police audiences, but with um, other, I deal a lot with social regulators of many different types. And um, I think that practitioners, uh, you know, when a professor or an academic walks into the room, um, are automatically wondering whether on earth this person knows how the world really works. Um, just having done the job for 10 years, and in particular um, with police audiences, um, having lived inside a police culture and understood the pressures and stresses that police officers face, um, I think that that gives you a lot of credibility on day one. Um, of course, what happens on day two depends on what you said on day one. Um, but in terms of opening the door and uh, developing some uh, honesty and trust, I think it's helped a great deal. Malcolm, I want to thank you very much for this interview. I've enjoyed it. Thank you very much, Bill. I have too. And that's all for this edition of the Brookings Cafeteria. My thanks to our audio engineer and producer, Zach Colzer, with editing help from Mark Holscher. Plus thanks to Carissa Nitschi, Bill Finan, Jessica Pavone, Eric Abalahin, Rebecca Weiser, and our intern, Sarah Abdel-Rahim. You can subscribe to the Brookings Cafeteria on iTunes and listen to it in all the usual places. You can send feedback email to bcp at brookings.edu. And if you haven't checked it out yet, listen to our new podcast, Intersections. Find it on iTunes or on our website. Until next time, I'm Fred Dews.